Welcome to the Everything Music Ed podcast. I'm your host, Tom Borning. In this podcast, we'll hear from educators, performing musicians, composers, conductors, and others about their experiences in learning, teaching, and performing music. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram to find out about upcoming episodes, and be sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, please feel free to email me at everythingmusiced at gmail.com. In today's podcast, we are very fortunate to talk to DMAC, Dr. Kevin McDonald. A very special thank you to Kevin for this interview because the producer of this show may or may not have forgotten to hit record during the first half of the interview. Kevin was very gracious and redid the beginning half of the interview. In this episode, you're going to hear from one of the most busy music educators in the business. You'll hear about the most sought-after high school musician going into college that I've ever heard of. In addition, you'll hear about his interesting journey in being a euphonium player and sort of singing on the side to now being a very sought-after and an outstanding choral director. I hope you enjoy Dr. Kevin McDonald. going on at home uh my wife bought a uh herself a ticket to scotland last week and just went and she's infatuated with sheep so she spent a week on a sheep farm in scotland last week she flew in at 11 o'clock last night and had we had our church gig this morning so she's asleep ah so i'm is in florida state and we have no dog right at the current time. I have a puppy coming on Thursday. Oh, my. So so literally, I don't have anything going on. Oh, wow. Well, this is incredible. I really appreciate you doing this, man. So I'm here with Dr. Kevin McDonald. Very, very, very proud that uh, that you, you've, you've got the doctorate, which is incredible. You, I, and I, the thing that amazes me about it, and a mutual friend of ours, actually, I think he was your assistant band manager at Allstate, was Andrew Garcia. Am I correct? Yeah. Right? Andrew yeah. Andrew went through the entire process, but then didn't write the book. Yep. And um, yeah. I don't think he regrets it, actually, but um, he... Uh, Can I... That's funny, uh, but he... Uh, I'll have to get him on here. I haven't talked to him in a while, but uh, anyways, yeah, I... um, that's that's pretty incredible, and you... Got your doctorate at Hart School of Music? Yes, that's correct. That's well, correct. before we get into all that, though, I just uh, let's hear about uh, what your musical upbringing was like and what you remember about music education as a young kid. Sure thing. Sure thing. You know, musical influence started really young. Um, my mom was a church organist, uh, so I grew up immediately around music making uh and meetings to go over planning on how to make music um 
but I'm also the youngest of six kids, uh, and I'm significantly younger than my sisters. Uh, so, so I was able to see, you know, my brother Chris played trombone and then eventually gave it up to, for football. Uh, my brother Tim was a euphonium player uh, all the way through high school. My brother Rick uh, really loved music and, and can sing, and he, he, he didn't sing in high school. He was a little bit shy, but then he found it as an adult um, one year when, at, at the time when my sister and I could not sing for a Christmas service, my mom needed somebody to sing, and we just taught my brother, and he, he launched in his 30s um, wow. to sing. My sisters, Patty and Marie, were both singers. Um, so, and, and around my neighborhood, there were other musicians right in our neighborhood that I could look at and idolize and, and, and follow in the footsteps of. Um, so, grew up around music. Uh, knew that I wanted to join band eventually. And in fifth grade, when it came time to choose an instrument, I... The two main influences, my, my family had very little money growing up. And by choosing euphonium, I didn't have to pay for an instrument. And since my brother Tim already played euphonium, uh, I had a model of what that instrument sounded like. And it's a beautiful instrument. So in fifth grade, I started to take euphonium, but I also was highly competitive and you know, and that really fed well into my my athletics all the way through high school. Uh, but in this particular case, I was competitive because I wanted to be as good as my brother Tim, and I, I so I started to practice my euphonium right from day one. So was he still? He had he had already finished playing, or he was still playing too? He was well. He's eight and a half years older than me, so. He was a senior in high school. Was that right? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Oh, you know, yeah, he, maybe he would have finished. Yeah. He would have finished. He's in college at this point. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I was gonna be as good as my brother Tim, and he was good. And he was a good. He was a good euphonium player, I might add. So I, uh, I launched right from the get go, and we all know what happens when kids actually practice. <laughs> they, they, they can get pretty good if they practice, you know, and. Uh, I became a pretty good euphonium player pretty fast. And then my elementary teacher was Dan Carlson, uh, who was also an assistant at the high school in Ludlow, Massachusetts. Uh, then I went off to middle school, and Dennis Bunton was the band director. And he encouraged me a great deal always he asked me to play for christmas services at his church uh he encouraged me to audition for junior district um and i just kind of he got me my very first private lessons by getting me a scholarship from the town music association uh you know so mr bunton is a special special person is he related Um, to david button from uh yeah yeah, he is. That's his son. David is his son. Oh no, no, no! So I'm thinking of uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Dave Dave Button okay. was uh, my wife's band director from Reading High School. Oh no, 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 no! Different. Okay, okay, different, different. Um, so then, uh, in high school, 
uh, when I got there. The, the two directors, as I said, were Mr. Carlson and Royce Lehman. Uh, Royce Lehman had been there for quite some time. He taught all of my siblings uh, when they went through band. Uh, and I credit Royce with a very pivotal moment. He, he did say to me as a freshman, as a freshman, he says to me, uh, you know, Kevin, you're pretty good. If you keep working hard, someday you might be able to get the Chancellor's Award at UMass Amherst. And he said that to me as a freshman. Uh, he, he had some type of UMass connection at that time. And he then retired that year. And a very special person uh, took the job after him. Uh, and that is Cindy Koch. And Cindy came... Talk about someone who is completely and utterly selfless. She uh, she made our band program her family. And she would spend incredible number of hours at the school and after school uh, trying to find ways to rebuild a band program in a town that was not overly supportive of the arts. And she never lost hope. She never lost faith. And she kept on working at it. But the thing that strikes me is she understood the situation that not just myself, but several other people in the band were in where we were wanting more. We were wanting more experience. We wanted to play in better ensembles. And she opened a door for a collection of four or five of us to play in the UMass Youth Wind Ensemble under the direction of Bill Rowell. And she would drive around town and pick all of us up from different ends of town, drive us up to UMass Amherst, which was about a 35 to 40 minute drive from Ludlow, sit through the entire two hour rehearsal, then drive all of us to our individual homes to drop us off at our homes before she returned to her house in Holyoke, Mass. And as a music teacher now, I sit there, and not only legally, we would <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, I remember when I used to drive students every now and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 like there's no way in a million years that that would happen now. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I also recognize we were getting out of UMass Youth Wind Ensemble probably, I don't know, 9 o'clock maybe? So by the time she finishes dropping people off, it's 10, 15, 10, 30. Then she drives home, 11, 11, 30. And she has to be at school at 7 o'clock the next morning. And she did that. She never asked for anything in return no gas money no gifts nothing it was just her doing it to cultivate our musicianship and open up these opportunities and if that doesn't speak to a model of what you might want to be as a music educator someday you know the sacrifice and the dedication um 
the other person in high school that was a big influence on me was our choral director, Greg Rin. Uh, Greg Rin had been teaching 33 years at Ludlow High School at that time. I started singing my junior year of high school, uh, primarily to get out of a chemistry class. Um, but I joined choir, and he was the ultimate gentleman, super classy. He, he had reached a level of leadership that, that uh, one of my leadership books calls personhood. Personhood is arguably something that very few people ever reach, where it is simply your legacy is enough to, to exude the, the, the leadership qualities that you want in people. Um, and to this day, I, I find myself striving each and every day to be like Mr. Rin. Um, he, he, he was a special, special man. He always shared with us his philosophy, which was, and he, he would share this before every concert, um, that it is rare in today's day and age that people come together for the sole purpose of making something beautiful. And you have to cherish these moments. And he would give us the charge to go out on stage and make something beautiful. And I share that philosophy with my kids every single year. Uh, because I think it still drives my overall teaching philosophy. Um, as far as bridging from high school on into college... The storyline kind of falls under, it, you could trace a huge chunk of my career to my experience at the Summer Youth Music School at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, it's such, it, that still exists, right? It sure I mean, does. It, it was it, so... It's run now by Andy and Lindsay Boysen. Oh, nice. Nice, yeah. And it yeah. was, it was so many great musicians that I knew from New England, they all did it. They all did it. I yeah. had no clue what it even was. I And I such a huge regret because I just hear Jason, Jason yeah. Fettig, conductor of the President's Own. He did it. I know yeah. he did, but he was from New Hampshire too. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, and, and the story behind the story behind Sims for me, it, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, on a lot of levels. Um, but, you know, I, I keep mentioning the fact that my town was not that supportive in the arts, and I was primarily... I, I had two identities in high school. I was a musician, but I was an athlete. But in our school, uh, I it was good that I was really good at, at athletics because my teammates would forgive the fact that I was also a musician. <laughs> what, what, what sports did you play? Uh, I was a football player, a basketball player, and a track athlete. Oh, wow. Like three um, sports. Basketball, wow. basketball was my passion. Um, still very much so, actually. I Still still fairly infatuated with it. Um, nice. But, uh, but yeah, so, so like I said, my teammates would forget that I was a musician. Uh, and then the music people would forget that I was an athlete. Uh, you know, so it was kind of an interesting I, – I lived a dual life. Um, and my junior year, I, I, I made the all state band and my mom went to the concert and saw in the program an advertisement for Sims 
and she went to Sims when she was a little girl. Mm. Uh, and she asked me, Kevin, would you like to go to Sims? And the thought of going to music camp was horrifying to me. And I said, no way am I ever going to go to Sims. Um, well, you know, sometimes life likes to throw you some curveballs and some jokes along the way that make you laugh. And later that year, I would meet, um, her name was Jennifer Kennedy. Uh, her married name now is Jennifer Erdoti. And she was a oboe player and a singer at Minichog Regional, where I wound up meeting, like, really my musician best friends. To this day, my, my best friend in the world is Chris Sala, who's the principal trumpet player for the Navy Band. Um, but Jennifer uh, and I hit it off, and, and, and I asked her what she was doing for the summer, and she said that she was going to the University of New Hampshire Summer Youth Music School. And I went to my mom and I said it was a great educational opportunity for me to go to Sims. And she was thrilled to, to be able to send me off to UNH that summer. Um, and I didn't know what Sims was going to be either. I, I just knew that I wanted to play my horn and that I wanted to spend some time with my friend. And, uh, and when I got there, I took my euphonium audition and I got first chair in the wind ensemble and I got into the brass choir uh, but then I also decided to tr take a, a voice audition and I didn't even know that I could sing really um, but apparently they thought so because I eventually got the top score in camp and they put me in the select choir the mixed choir and the jazz choir then I also took an audition for music theater and I found myself in six ensembles performing for two weeks straight with people who had an equal passion for music and it was the first time i had ever been in that environment where you mean people actually spend their summer doing this and they like it this is pretty amazing um and the thing that was special is the faculty at sims were made up primarily of unh faculty members but Dave Seiler, who was, who was running the camp at the time, was college roommates with Robert Spevichek, who was the director of bands at the University of Idaho. And Spev brought his colleague, Dan Buckvich, who conducted the jazz choir at Sims. So of my six ensembles, I was playing in wind ensemble with Stan Hedinger, Brass Choir with Nick Orovich, taking tuba euphonium lessons with Robert Spevichek, doing Jazz Choir with Dan Buckvich, doing the Mixed Chorus with Wendell Purrington, who was at Portsmouth High School at the time, doing uh, the Select Choir with Kathy Spillane, who was a voice teacher at UNH, and loving every moment of it. So when I finished at Sims, uh, the voice teacher, Kathy Spillane, kind of planted a seed. And she kind of said, we would love to have you come and audition, and we could offer you up to $2,000 to come to UNH. Of course, I didn't realize that UNH cost about $17,000 at the time. Uh, and I certainly didn't have enough sense to recognize that my family would never have $17,000 to send me to, to college. Um, 
but I thought I'd hit the lottery with that $2,000 offer. <laughs> and, uh, and I entered my senior year of high school. So what that experience at UNH did, though, is it was the very first time I actually thought to myself, you mean that I can actually maybe make a living doing music at some point? You can study music in college and be your job. And, and I never really thought of it that way. Um, and I was certainly between physical training and music for a, music, for a college major. And the way that things played out is I decided to audition on my euphonium as a euphonium major at college. And I decided to play it safe with my first audition, an audition at UMass Amherst. And when I say safe, it's not safe because of quality. It was safe because I had been playing for Bill Rowell for for years at that point. Uh, I knew he knew who I was. And I felt that I had a little bit of a resume going into that audition. Um, So the day before the audition, I asked my choir director, do you think it would be a good idea to sing something for the UMass faculty? And he, he in a very, Mr. Rin in a very subtle way just went, that might be a good idea. And I said, well, what should I sing? And he said, well, what do you know? I said, I, well, I know Bring Him Home from Les Mis. And he said, sing that. So I went off to my audition at UMass Amherst, and I played my euphonium audition, and I did the sight reading. I took the music theory placement test. And then I just walked down the hall and knocked on the voice teacher's door, <laughs> introduced myself, <laughs> said, Hi, I'm Kevin McDonald, and I would like to sing Bring Him Home from Les Mis for you. And... uh and I auditioned. That was my audition for voice. Uh, about a week later, I received a letter informing me that Mr. Lehman's foreshadowing came came true and that I had received the Chancellor's Award at UMass Amherst. With my dad being handicapped at this time and my mom trying to make ends meet, none of my siblings having attended a four-year college, uh it was a very special moment to recognize that I was going to be able to go to school for music. And I'm celebrating. My dad is crying uh, in his wheelchair. And the phone rang. And on the other end of the phone was the voice teacher from UNH. Now, you would think that I would have made the connection that the voice teacher was calling me to have me audition on voice. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't make that connection, but she did say that they had these full scholarships that they would like me to come and audition for. And I informed Dr. Spillane that I had just received this offer from UMass Amherst and, uh, and that I had to give them an answer in five business days, at which point she asked if I could come the following day for an audition. And that's what happened. I went up to UNH and I played my euphonium audition for Nick Orovich. And I did all of that. And then I went to the voice room just like I did at UMass. And I knocked on the door and said, Hi, I'm Kevin McDonald. I would like to sing Bring Him Home from Les Mis. And I did that. And they came back and offered me a full scholarship as well. 
So really, like, uh, at that, it seems like you're probably like with a LeBron James of music at the time, you know, like, you know, like if, if it was like an ESPN for music, you know, like when he was, uh, oh man, his high school team is, uh, you know, it was green. I remember that it was like, it was a green, you know, he used to show his high school games and be like, oh, it would have like Kevin McDonald's like high school concerts. Oh, look at McDonald. He's got that euphonium solo right there. Yep. Oh, and now he's going over to sing. Yeah, he's like, you know, and so it's like all the colleges fighting after having to get you into their, into their college. <laughs> you know, and, but, but, you know, it is funny. I, I would never, I would never categorize my, that way. I, I just think that, that you don't have that many euphonium players and you don't have that many tenors. So when you have two in the same body, That's true. Uh, then, then it helps your, helps your case. <laughs> But the, but but my wife my my wife loves it loves this part of the story though, uh, so eventually I mean I, I took the UNH scholarship primarily because it was a little bit further from home and I I felt like I needed to separate from home a, a tiny bit at that time I I had been taking care of my dad quite a bit at that point and it became obvious that if I went to UMass Amherst, I would always be on call. Um, I'd have to run home a lot. And so I chose to go to UNH. It was a tough call, but I also needed my parents to be able to do something to fill that void because I wasn't always going to be living at home, right? So, And I had other siblings in the area too, so I wasn't abandoning them. I, I want that to be clear in, in this story. <laughs> um but I did. I did decide to go a little bit further from home. And on the very first day when I was at UNH, the voice teacher came up to me and she said, "Kevin, you you need to see me to schedule your voice lessons." And uh, and I, my my mom and dad, I, I keep mentioning like we didn't have any money. They just bought me a brand new horn uh, to send me off to college with. And I, so I asked the voice teacher, why do I need to schedule voice lessons? And she said, Kevin, your scholarship's on voice. And at that point in time, it was like, well, I'm a, I'm a double major now. And uh, so, so that's exactly what we did. UNH was an incredible experience. Stan Hedinger with Wind Ensemble, Nick Orovich, uh, was my private teacher on brass. Mark DeTurk was my advisor for music education. Um, but the real special relationship that I wound up having, and, I, and that's not even true. I can't categorize that. Nick, Nick Orovich was pretty influential and remains so in my mine and my family's life at this point. But the choral director at UNH, his name was Buddy Howard, Cleveland Howard, he was having some health issues at the time, uh, and his wife had passed away, and his son had moved away. So I happened to have, as a summer job, landscaping behind me. So it started off by him needing someone to mow his lawn. So he would hire me to mow his lawn, and I would go and I would take care of all of his yard work. And he did pay me, but I would have done it for free. 
because what I got in return is whenever I was finished with the yard work, he would invite me into his house and we would sit in his living room and talk three, four, five hours. All about choral music, all about some of his experiences, lessons in life. He impacted me deeply um, all the way through UNH. I, I did my student teaching in Madison, Wisconsin on a fall semester. I took one extra semester because of the double major. And Dr. Howard, to show you who Dr. Howard is, he calls me on the phone while I'm in Madison and he says, what are you doing for winter break? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of out of money. There's going to be no teaching jobs open in the middle of a school year, so I'm going to move home and I'll substitute teach and I'll figure something out and I'll apply for jobs in the spring. And he said, yeah, well, I just bought you a ticket to Jamaica. We're bringing a choir to Jamaica and you're going to come with and you're going to sing with us. Hmm. And he paid my way to Jamaica uh, so I could have that experience. And uh, and he was just a very special, special human being that had deep impact on me. Um, See, that would have been like illegal recruiting for LeBron James, like if he had gone to college. You know what I mean? It's like, this is like, true. this is pretty incredible. True. <laughs> true, true, true. You know what I mean? Like, so, that's, how, that's how Marcus can be. At UMass, yeah, like, that got wiped that out. That season, the nineteen ninety six UMass Minutemen, is wiped out. It never happened. It never <laughs> happened. It, that that necklace was worth yeah, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, Derek Kellogg on that team. Yep. Uh, Derek Kellogg played for Cathedral High School, and uh, and and he whooped us in the tournament something fierce i have to tell you he scored like 40 points on me yeah. um but anyway yeah but you know so so yeah so unh was uh everything i i would have hoped it would be uh and as i finished up um there i was contacted by robert spevichek who i had met at sims years earlier and he offered me an opportunity to come out to the University of Idaho and get my master's degree in low brass performance. Uh, and an opportunity to work with Spev and an opportunity to have some time with Dan Buckvich out there. Uh, and I had no other plans at the time. I didn't have a job lined up. So I traveled right out and... Uh, Got my master's degree at Idaho. Idaho was a life-changing experience. Uh, I, I still am in awe of the faith they had in me because I, I really don't think I knew much at that time. Uh, and I wasn't just going in as an assistant to one person at the University of Idaho. Uh the first thing they did is you're now the assistant marching band director and they had a pretty good marching band there. So I'm like, okay, so I'm the assistant marching band. I, I don't really know how to march, but we'll figure this out. But then I found out that along with that, I was also going to be the assistant in the tuba euphonium studio class and in the conducting class and in wind ensemble and in symphonic band. 
And then, uh, and I, and I was ready to focus. I was finally going to focus on my euphonium playing. I wasn't going to sing, but Dan recognized me from Sims and he said, Hey, Kevin, I run this jazz choir at three thirties on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You should come check it out. And Dan has a personality. When Dan asks you to do something, you do it. He, he's a very influential, powerful figure. Quite a presence. And uh, so when he says, come check it out, we're like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. So I expected to see a jazz choir of 20. And I walked into a room and there are 200 people standing in a circle. And he's about to start rehearsal. And he said, Kevin, glad you came to check it out. The tenor section's over there. And so I placed myself in the very back of the tenor section. And about five minutes into the rehearsal, he walked towards the tenor section. And they all parted like the waters, uh, like Moses parting the waters. And he grabbed me by the arm, pulled me in the middle of the circle. And in front of 200 people said, this is Kevin McDonald, grad student from University of New Hampshire. When I'm not here, he's me. You'll call him Mr. McDonald. And he will be working with you. He'll be conducting you. And we felt it was important that you get to know what his face looks like. So everyone say hi to Mr. McDonald. And he threw me back into the circle. That is just uh, incredible. Like, I can't, I can't even imagine. Like, he hadn't heard you sing in four years. No, I I have no idea what caused him to do this, and 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 what I found out later is he had never let anyone work with that group before. I, I don't know why he felt it was the right time. Well, when uh, LeBron or, or James or... comes to your school, it's it's you know, LeBron James. You allow LeBron James to take some shots, whether you're even if you're Michael Jordan. <laughs> well, it was uh, that that group. What they did, it wasn't even an official university ensemble. Uh, it's just the most popular one. Right. And Dan is a composer, arranger, mostly band music, actually. Yep. Um, but he writes this these choral arrangements for big choir that's of American popular music. And uh, it's a pretty cool thing they have rolling. But then he does have a legit jazz choir uh, of about 20 voices. And I eventually would sing for that as well and, and, and get some jazz experience from him there. But he also taught all of the freshman music theory and ear training. And I became a TA in that class as well. And and the thing about going to the University of Idaho, as opposed to, you know, if you go to an Indiana, if you go to Jacobs School of Music, you're one of how many grad students sure. going through that program. Uh Idaho wasn't constructed that way. There were probably about 12 grad students total. And most of them are performance majors. And I was the only one that was really wanting to be like an ensemble conductor and, and a music educator. So all of them grabbed me. And, and, and to this day, what Dan says to me is, what made me different is that I always showed up. That that I that if 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 anyone asked me to do something, I said yes. I you know I wound up being the volunteer coordinator for the Lionel Hampton Jazz Festival, which was at the time the country's second biggest jazz festival. 
though I mean it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. The university shuts down. They infiltrate every building on campus and you get to hang with all of the greats. You're actually talking to Diana Krall and Bill Watrous and, <laughs> and Slide Hampton and, and, and James Moody and Roberta Gambarini. And I mean, you're hanging with all these people and, and, and you're learning so much by being in, the, in, in their presence. Uh, but the thing that Idaho did by being an assistant in all of these different classes is I'm, I'm 22, 23. And there were times that all three of them would get hired for, for music festivals throughout the Pacific Northwest. And someone had to teach their classes. And they all fell on me. So, so you know, and I, and I ran with the ball. I, I, I wound up being like the president of the NAFME chapter. And, and, and I, I was leading all of the athletic bands. You know, I was doing the Vandalizer pep band. And, you know, you just, it was what I did. And... And it leads me to a lot of our other, uh, a lot that we'll cover in this conversation about that, you know, my job was my hobby. Like if there's something I want to do, it was to make music and to experience everything that I possibly could. And I've always had a very wide open view of music. So, so I can be, you know, if, if you're doing, um, Lincolnshire Posey or Granger and then doing another piece by Duke Ellington and then going and singing a piece by Palestrina and then doing a pep band tune of doing soul man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. this, this was, this was a blast. Yeah. I, I, I was never bored. Yeah. It, it was so fun. Yeah, well, this is also cool. I like that. That's really fun. Like I, I love all the different genres of music. Like I have played in salsa bands and rock bands and jazz bands and, you know, and last year I played in two chamber orchestras and it, I, I hadn't done a ton of orchestra work in a while. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is so refreshing to play chamber orchestra music. Uh, you know, it was so fun. So then it's, so then it's after Ida, you graduate from Idaho and you and you move back to your area. Yeah. So so at that point in time my my dad's uh, my dad had musculosclerosis is what he had but it was a rare it was a rare variant at the time they couldn't diagnose and figure out why things were happening uh, but I felt like I needed to come back home um, I had met who is now my wife out in Moscow Idaho and she had one more year to uh, she had one more year of, of study so we spent a year apart and I came out to Massachusetts to start my career and I jumped in with both feet. Um, I got the job at Cathedral High School in Springfield, Mass, which was a band, choir, music theory, music appreciation job. Um, how, many, how many people at that school? There were about 1,200 people at the school, but, but the ensembles were... I took over... <laughs> This is actually a really funny story. This is where sometimes ego, like you, as a fifty-two-year-old, I look back at the ego that I had at the time, and it's not. It wasn't good. It wasn't oh, good. Please, Tom. I'm right there with you on uh, that um, one. You know, it, it, I basically what happened is uh, when they offered me the job, I asked for a second interview. Uh, and in that second interview, I asked the principal, Cathedral High School was extremely strong academically 
and extremely strong athletically. They didn't have any type of real performing arts. The, um, the band was literally 11 people at the time. And of the 11, eight of them were percussion. Okay. Uh, it wound up being a scenario where their choir, their select choir was about 20 people and they couldn't sing a major chord in tune. Uh, the vocal ensemble were, were seven sopranos and altos. And I basically asked for the second interview and I said to the principal, I need to know that you really want to have a performing arts program. And if you tell me yes, and that you'll support me in what I need to do to build the program, then I will take your job. But if it is just filling a position, then I would rather not take this position. And they said, Kevin, we will support you no matter what. So I took that job and what happened at Cathedral very, very quickly is the band of 11 very quickly became a band of 20 and would eventually become a band of 50 that were doing some significant work by the time I left. My wife, who was the color guard instructor at the University of Idaho, had come out a year later and I got all of my singers to join Color Guard. And actually, I, I shouldn't say I got them. My wife recruited them to be Color Guard. And my wife did brilliant work with them. So now if you have a band of 30 or 40 plus a Color Guard of 20 or 30, you're now able to put something on a field and have it look pretty good. And if you get the group playing in tune so the sound actually carries, you know, we, we got better fast. Is the best way I can say mm-hmm. it. The choral program exploded. Uh, I said to a couple of the juniors, I, I, I had a five-year plan in place of how I was going to build this thing. And the first year was, how do I use the resources in the building? How do I get some of those 1,200 kids in my classroom? And, and there's a lot of ways you do that, but the biggest recruiting tool are, are the kids that you have in the high school. Right, the ones who are in your class, they're the ones that have to go talk this up, and they have to deliver a message of how awesome things are. So they went ahead and and they took my charge to heart, and we tripled the size of the choir in one year, and then we tripled again. So by my third year, we had the numbers, things were rocking and rolling. My wife and I got married that year. The cathedral choir sang at our wedding. Suddenly they felt like they were part of the family, right? And and I would not change anything in those first five years. Cathedral High School did support me. I, I went to them and I said, I want new marching band uniforms. They said, no problem. And they dumped the money that that is needed. I, I forget what it was, like $50,000 or something like that at the time, to get 45 to 50 brand new uniforms and all of the equipment that goes with it. Uh, we had replaced all of the percussion equipment to, to get top-of-the-line Pearl marching drumline. Um, it, was, it was awesome. Uh, the choirs were... The choir performances, our, our Christmas concert and our spring concert went from having like 40 or 50 people in attendance to about 1,300, and we'd fill the auditorium. Um, and because Cathedral was a 
served the entire Western Massachusetts region, we were having all of the parishes, all of the Catholic parishes throughout the Diocese of Springfield would advertise the concerts and they would all come. It, oh, wow. it, it just picked up incredible momentum. That's funny. That's, that's like, I always thought, I always thought Cathedral was a public school because it was so big. And I was like, but yeah. then obviously with a name like Cathedral, you're like, I, I just didn't know if there was, it was called Cathedral because it was whatever location or whatever. Right. But I mean, I just remember that being because no, it was school. affiliated with the main cathedral in Springfield. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I again, I wouldn't change anything, and I knew that I was going to get my doctorate after five years. I, I even shared that in my interview with the principal. I'll, I'll teach five years, and then I'm going to go get my doctorate. Um, and when it came time to do so, I struggled because I, I was in love with that school. Yeah, and I was in love with those students, and uh, and it, things were working so well, right? Um, but my wife had a point. Uh, the salary of that particular school was really, really low, and she looked at me and she said, "We'll never have a house and a child as long as you teach there." And she had it down on paper, and and, and she was right. She was right. So I was like, I couldn't imagine leaving that job for another job uh but i could stay true to my original intent and go get my doctorate and uh, and i and that's how i found my way to heart i did three years of study at the heart school and upon finishing the coursework uh i didn't have my dissertation done. So I wasn't really in the running for a lot of main university jobs until you get that degree in sure. hand. Um, but this job opened up at Wellesley high school and, and I, I, you know, this is where I, my sister, well, a lot of people say I, I lead a very blessed life and I would agree. Uh, some really amazing things have happened to me. And, and when I, called Wellesley, I always had a routine that I would do when I applying for a job. I would call the school to find out more about the job, even if it said it in the description. I just wanted them to hear my name. Sure. And and this was back in the time when we have paper resumes, right? Mm -hmm. So you're wanting them to keep putting that resume on top of the pile and have a reason to keep putting your name up on sure. top. And And I knew how to play the game. But what was funny is I I, uh, I called up Wellesley for that first step, and I talked to Sandy Nicolucci. Oh, boy. And, yep. And I said, Dr. Nicolucci, my name is Kevin McDonald. I'm a, I, I see in the Boston Globe that you have advertised for a high school choral director, and I was wondering if you could tell me more about the program. And her reply to me was, I appreciate your phone call, Kevin, but we are offering the job to somebody tomorrow. Uh, so it's not actually open at this time. So I, I'm just casting things for jobs, right? So I kind of said to Sandy, uh, well, thank you. Um, I'm going to send you my materials by email anyway. And if you could keep them on file in the case something else opens up in your district, I would greatly appreciate uh, you keeping me in mind. So I sent my things by email to her 
And she called me within five minutes. And she said, can you come for an interview tomorrow? And I said, absolutely. And I went out to Wellesley the next day. Uh, She asked me one interview question. Tell me about yourself. Hmm. And I finished and she said, can you come back and teach in a couple days so we could see your audition? Absolutely. So it happened very quick. uh, And I got the job at Wellesley. And my job at Wellesley is an absolute dream job for a choral director. Uh, You are literally... uh, My job is five choirs that meet in the school day. And what when we created the acapella program after that, it has blossomed up to four acapella groups. So I have nine groups that I work with at Wellesley High School. Amazing kids who work hard, who are well-informed, and want to do well. Uh, They understand the right philosophy of music making. Uh, They love being with each other. I I always say that, you know, I, I, I did a presentation for the Micah Summer Institute this past summer that shared basically six principles that I always use that I, that guide me in my job. Uh, and those six principles are serve the music. Learned that from uh, an Allstate clinic years ago that had a, 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 the Mount Rushmore of band directors sitting up there. Mike Musi, Jeff Leonard, Steve Massey. Actually, it's just the three of them, so I guess there will be three people on Mount Rushmore. Okay. Sure. Uh, those three. That's enough. Um, so serve the music, serve the ensemble. What What's good for the ensemble is not always what's good for the individual, which then means my third principle is serve the individual, get to know every kid, know what they need, know how to guide them, uh, and know how to pull the strings to get them to invest in, in, in the program and how to become better people and better musicians. Love the art love the process and love each other teach that people are more important than the topic at hand and those six principles have served my kids and our school and our community and myself really well for 30 years now oh that's and, uh, great man that's that's incredible I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy for you thank you so much you mentioned earlier about about being involved in MMEA, and I just think it's really important to hear like why and how that can be such a good thing for teachers to be involved in it and what your experiences has been in it. Yeah, you know, the professional organizations, you know, I think that it, for me personally, growing up, participation in district, all state and all eastern band was life changing. I saw conductors that I wanted to be like. I met people that to this day are are some of my best friends, honestly, in the profession. And it opened up a door for music making that I could not achieve in my own programs in my own hometown. So I knew that I wanted to get involved. And when I first started to teach, I know that I knew I needed a network. I needed to learn from those with more experience than myself. And getting involved in district 
was the key. Uh, so in my first five years, when I taught at Cathedral, I assistant managed and managed both the junior and senior district chorus twice, and I assistant managed and managed the all-state band once. And attending district meetings, attending all-state executive board meetings, I learned who a lot of the heavy hitters were in our state. And I learned about which programs were stronger in our state. And it opened up doors to spend hours with these people talking about the profession and talking about their programs and what made them successful. And I've always been like that. I, I, I always try to find out what does someone else do really, really well? And and can I achieve that same level? And how might that impact and affect what I do? How can it open up opportunities for my own students? How can I teach better? And that's what these professional organizations do. The trick for me was... When my wife moved out, I had one year at Cathedral when she was still finishing her degree in Moscow, Idaho. And when I say I jumped in with both feet, I, I did. I, I signed up for the Wilbraham Men's Glee Club so I could sing under the direction of Ray Drury. He was the choral director at Minichog Regional at the time. So I could learn how he conducted choirs. On Tuesday, I did the Springfield Symphony Chorus, and I did so so I could learn from Mark Russell Smith when he conducted the Springfield Symphony. Uh, on Wednesday, I, I conducted my first community choir gig at Granby Community Chorus. On Thursday, I sang in the Old First Church Choir under the direction of Charles Page. Friday, there were no extra gigs, so I didn't have to do anything Friday. But then Saturday, of course, you're in marching band season with, with your high school band, so you're involved there. And then on Sunday, I was doing the church gig. And next thing you know, you're already working, you know, seven days a week. And to this day, I still work seven days a week. I still have my handle and Haydn group on Saturdays and I have my church job on Sundays and Wellesley is a job and a half in and unto itself. Um, but when my wife moved out, it was a learning curve because I was spending a lot of time on the job and I needed to find a way to be there for my wife. Right. And the agreement that, she and I made after my first five years when I went to go get my doctorate is uh, that I would be selective, more selective uh, moving forward. And it has, I, I have not gone on to be like, I, some opportunities have presented themselves to be more and more active in both all state and, and district. But I, I'm cautious about making that type of time commitment away from home. So what I do do is 
I went another way of how can I serve the profession in other ways. So I've held board positions with ACDA multiple times, or like five or six times. Um, I do my best to help at the festival without necessarily having a position. So I've, I've done a lot of the voice testing at Allstate, or if someone needs someone to do solo auditions, um, someone's looking for someone to help, help move equipment. Uh, you know, I'm always willing to join on, but I have incredible respect and admiration for those who have taken the reins to hold these high power positions through MMEA and NAFME to continue to open up all of these opportunities for kids. Um, so I mentioned that, you know, we had senior district auditions yesterday and yesterday afternoon, I, it was interesting early in my career, I'd be waiting for the results for, of my kids. Yeah. Last night, I, I have to admit around four o'clock in the afternoon, I was sitting there thinking about each individual who are on the board of the MMEA Eastern district that just spent their entire day running those auditions for my kids. Sure. Um, it, I'm extremely grateful. Um, and, and I do a lot of guidance behind the scenes. I, I, I have lots of conversations with, with people who are on the board without being on the board. I think the most important thing is that you're involved and that you're trying to serve the profession. Um, that you're trying to increase and improve opportunities for kids. Yeah. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm about. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, I mean, again, I, you know, I was Allstate band manager, jazz band manager, Southeast district band manager, jazz band manager, all Cape band, jazz, all of, all of it. Um, concert chairperson before uh, at Southeast district and it, it was a great it was great for a long time you know i did that i was all in for probably about 10 years my first 10 years of teaching i was all in on it um yep. and then shortly after i moved to 5th and 6th grade which i really did a lot of that because of the time commitment that you were talking about cuz it was very similar you know i would be like you know, tw twice a month we had band parent meetings on Monday nights and, um, you know, Thursday nights was this particular group. I was a gigging musician. I'd play on Saturdays and Sundays or what, whatever it was. You know, there was marching band. There was all-state auditions, all-state festivals, Southeast auditions, Southeast festival, all the, all the things that, that we do and all the extra things, you know, were really piling up. And then got to a point where like you know my kids were like five six years old and uh i felt like i was starting to miss some things and i remember being at i can't remember the exact thing i was at but i remembered i saw some of my students sort of screwing around like high school students do it really wasn't even that bad and right. and it hit me it's something I was so mad at these students for screwing around. And I'm like, I'm here right now missing my daughter's lacrosse game. 
and you guys are screwing around. And I, I just, I started to resent my students. And, and again, I don't think they were doing anything that was too crazy. Like it like hindsight, like it's so was so nothing. It was high school kids being high school kids, but I, I started to resent my students. And so it was like, you know, and then this position opened up in town and I took it and, uh, yeah. You know, Tom, I, I think that it's interesting. It, that story that you just told is one that a lot of times music teachers don't share these these stories about the profession because at a core level we we chose to major in music and be music teachers and our job is also our hobby it's also our passion i i, I tell my group at Handel and Haydn every, every year that the reason why I do Handel and Haydn on Saturday morning is when I wake up in the morning, if there's something I want to do, I want to make music with kids and I want to conduct and I want to teach and I, and I enjoy it very, very much. And it's such a rewarding profession on so many levels but like anything else, you can become addicted to it where you can't get enough of it. And you have to, you always feel like you have to keep driving. And the story that you were just sharing, uh, one of the most profound stories that my family has is when I came out to Wellesley, we, we, do the music, we were doing the musical in the fall. And it was considered to be part of the job. You know, you, you're, you should be doing the musical. And my son was four at the time. And there, there were two things. One was that there was a picture that my wife took of my son sitting on his bookcase, looking out the window, waiting for me to come home one day. And that was hard to see because when the musical hits, right... It starts off being from three to six every day. And then in the second or third week of October, it became three to seven. And then as it got closer to the last two weeks, it turned into three to eight thirty. And your son's bedtime is seven o'clock. And, you know, as we just fell back and it's nice and dark out right now. What happened was we took Halloween off and I came home. We did the trick-or-treating thing. I put my son to bed and I, I used to take all of those duties, putting him to bed whenever I could. And musical didn't allow that to happen. And I, you know, I read him his story. I sang to him. I tucked him in and I came down to see my wife and we're sitting there and he came down the stairs at four years old. And he said the following thing. Dad, it was really great that you could stay over tonight. Maybe you can do it again sometime. He actually thought I had moved out. Mm. Oh my gosh. And and it, it it was true. Like I had I was on a two week span where I hadn't seen my son. And that wasn't that's an eye opener. That's an eye opener. And Luckily, the musical is not a full year experience, but there's always something, 
that you, you and to, and we made decisions like everyone else does like every family has to make decisions so we made a decision to move from marlboro to framingham we lived in framingham for a while traffic patterns changed and when he got into sixth seventh grade and his extracurriculars really started to take off we moved again so now we live in natick right on the right on the wellesley border and i'm a, i have a five minute commute to school a five minute commute to church and i was able to do that through all of his middle school and high school but it, it came from those days of not seeing my family for two and a half three weeks because of a musical right and the kids who were in the musical you know were the musicals amazing yeah they were and we had a great time and those are life-changing experiences for those students but how to make sure you carve out the time to be there for your family is is difficult and because you care so much none of those decisions are ever easy they're never easy yeah and and uh there's so many things that are like that i mean if you think about i always think about well, i'm getting ready to do a music like i'm playing in a pit orchestra which is different because i'm just going for like a week or whatever but but i always think it's hard for me to be healthy uh when i'm when i'm playing a musical like mm-hmm. okay i'm i'm you know like so monday after school i have jazz band after school till four thirty, and then i have to go to be at a pit orchestra that's like 45 minutes away for five thirty. so it's like i'm i'm getting some i'm getting some crappy food and i'm shoving it in my face unless i you know think ahead which realistically i have been better about making something in the morning packing it up so that i know that i'm putting something good in my mouth um that's healthy for me but it is really tough during those situations to be smart about that type of thing and like keep sure. keep track of your yourself like that you know like i i think that's something that's important to you too isn't it Oh, a hundred percent. It's, uh, you know, I, I had a health scare probably about 10 years ago. Um, and I never had any symptoms, never had any symptoms. I, I, because I love what I'm doing so much that sometimes you don't realize that it's taking a toll, um, because you're always on and, and and when I say health scare, it, it was a it was a blood pressure situation. Um, apparently, I had high blood pressure for years, and it is genetic in my family too. Um, but I didn't realize that by being on all the time, I was jeopardizing my health. Right, um, and th- there are ways to do it. There are ways to do both. Um, And I'm much wiser about it now. Um, What I found this past year and since COVID, right? You know, we've all been trying to rebuild everything since COVID. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there's the pressure of making everything you do the same quality that it was five years ago. And that's just not reality. Um, Things change and people's priorities shifted. And school policies changed and scheduling changed. And, and I think that I found myself at the end of last year, 
as you get into your 50s and uh, you start realizing, wait a second, you know, I, I still have, you know, I, I won't be, re because I taught at Cathedral and because um, I did the doctoral studies full time, I'm eight years behind in the retirement side. And, and, and I'm not looking to retire by, by any stretch, but I'm sitting there going, realistically, if I want to retire at 80%, then I'm going to be working till I'm probably about 64, 65. And I started to realize for me to be the best teacher I can be, the best husband I can be, and when my son comes home from college, the best father I can be, uh, I need to take better care of myself. So this past year, I, I really made it a, a concrete effort um, to eat better, to get to the gym and maintain my physical strength, um, allow myself to do something that's not on the job, um, which is still tricky because, uh, you know, the jobs have their demands, you know, you, you have to meet your job. And, and again, it sounds like, woe is me, but it's not because you still like the work. <laughs> you still love the work. You still love the planning. You still love the process. Um, but I think it's important to take care of yourself. And I think it's important to take care of your family. And I think it's important to be there for your family. And uh, the same love you have for your students, you need to make sure you are also maintaining your love for your family. Yeah, right? I've definitely, you know, I've waffled a couple times in my life and I feel like I'm, I'm finally like in a pretty good air spot with it right now. But, um, at least over the last few years, January of 2020, I was this close to 300 pounds, this yeah. close, you know, yep. and I know I'm tall, but that's no excuse. But I will tell you this, there was a couple of times where I got pretty heavy and then I, you know, got better about eating and exercising and stuff. And man, I was a better teacher then too. Yep. You know, isn't that incredible? Hundred percent. I like. It's like, hmm. Is that just that can't be a coincidence? Like, I feel like I'm yeah. a better teacher right now. Like, there's something that's interesting, right? Sure is. So, so we've talked about a lot about a lot of things. Um, not. Hey, so, Tom, you're not you're not on my Facebook or anything, are you? I am. You are okay. So you, you see a lot of the yeah, I do. Like you just had like a, oh, I can't. I'm gonna mess up the name. You had it like Octopella or something or whatever. October. October. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, October. <laughs> I knew you was had something to do with October and Acapella or whatever. Something you just yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know. I, j getting back to uh, the fun stuff, right? You know, I've been I've been very blessed across the board, and. Uh, I knew that I was going to teach five years and I knew I was going to go get my doctorate. I didn't know what my doctorate would be in. Uh, because after I did my master's degree in low brass performance, I was still steering. I'm going to be a band director. And it was at cathedral that suddenly my choirs kind of took off. Uh, and we became uh, my, my choir at cathedral high school became like, the bishop's choice for any of the big events in Springfield, right? I wouldn't change anything about my time at Cathedral. It was a storybook start to a career. The only thing that could have been better is 
the salary. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty low. It was pretty low, no doubt. Um, so anyway, when my choirs took off, um, that's what prompted me to go get my doctorate in choral. And uh, it became choral music education. Uh, the, the official degree is a DMA in choral, uh, sorry, a DMA in music education with choral conducting emphasis. And I walked right into the Wellesley job when I finished my coursework. And my job at Wellesley is really a dream job for a choral director. Uh, I have five choirs that meet in the school day. Uh, I have a tenor bass choir, a soprano alto choir, a non-auditioned mixed choir, a select choir, and a jazz choir. And then we created the acapella program about my third year. Uh, that acapella program was designed very much like Brian O'Connell's old Lexington job, the one that now Jason Iannuzzi rocks. Um, you know, and we created this acapella program. Started off as one group, then gained popularity, and two more groups wanted to start. Then our program kept on growing beyond that, and then we added a fourth group. And when I got to the point where I was running nine groups plus music theory at Wellesley High School, and still doing the musical, and still doing everything else, uh, I had to call it at some point. So there's been a call occasionally to add that fifth acapella group, but I just don't have any more time to, to give on that. Uh, and the evolution at Wellesley has been fascinating and interesting. It's been quite a ride. Uh, we've done some things that I, you know, I dreamed about doing. So, you know, we, when my students get to perform with the Boston Pops at Symphony Hall, uh, that is something that seeing those students up on that stage is everything. Absolutely everything. Um, the reason why I did, you know, I'm not sure if it recorded or not, but if you did press record and you talked about the title of my dissertation, that was kind of an interesting piece because I adopted the jazz choir at Wellesley when I took the job. And although I sang in a jazz choir at Idaho for two years, I had no idea how to teach jazz choir. And, and it really became for me, I needed to learn how to do it. So I made it the topic of my dissertation because it forced me to do an incredible amount of research. Right. Restate the title again. Well, the title is The Effect of Vocal Jazz Aural Skill Instruction on Student Sight Singing Achievement. And... That was not the original title, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, what, what happened is I was very anecdotal. So I kind of was like, I started off, I was going to do a survey study of all of the vocal jazz programs in New England. And it was going to be my way of finding out who's teaching jazz choir, who's teaching it well, and what are they doing to teach it well so I can learn how to teach my own jazz choir. It, it, it was a perfect it was a perfect plan uh, all the way until uh, I got two years into the research 
when the Hart School changed their policy slightly and they decided they would not be approving subjective research studies for dissertations. So I early on in our conversation, I said, nothing's ever a straight line. I, I wish I could look you in the eye and tell you I went right through my doctorate. It was easy. It was anything but. Uh, and what happened is after they said they were not approving my dissertation moving forward because they wanted it to be an objective research study, I mourned for about a year. I, I paid for a full year of dissertation credits where I did nothing because I was just like, I was just really upset about um, not being able to use that research. And I, there was a pivotal moment at home where I told Michaela, I said, listen, I have this great job in Wellesley. I don't see myself ever leaving it. Uh, I don't think I'm going to finish the doctorate. And she looked at me and she said, well, that's fine, except all your son will ever remember is that you never finished your doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) So at that point in time, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to finish it. And uh, so I had to figure out how to use some of that research and make it some type of objective research study. And what was happening is I create these two select ensembles at school every year. And I work tirelessly to make them absolutely equal level. And yet every year when we get into the actual instruction, uh, when we got to all state or district and all state uh, pre-auditions and whatnot, it was always the jazz choir kids that were outscoring the select choir kids. And I couldn't figure out why that was. And I, I started to suspect there was a tie. When we were in jazz, when you're talking about actually speaking the language through the improvisation, uh, you're talking about looking at notation and interpreting straight and swing at any given moment. And, and we all know that you know, people think that you teach swing one, a two, a three, a four, and stay, and, and it stays there. No, no, that's not how the phrases actually work. You have to figure out how to forward phrase and how to back phrase. And you, and you have to learn how to use the material you have to make the music your own. Uh, and then how to use that in your improv, which is your expression, right? And I started to realize, you know, that's something that in traditional choir you're not doing. You're always performing the work that someone else wrote right and i started to wonder if there was a tie there um so we developed this research study to compare the two groups and and as far as the dissertation goes the results were didn't didn't support my suspicion Hmm. but i also think that any anyone who really dives into research strongly knows that with every research study, there's always a limitation of study. And that's what happened with this. In order to keep it fair and equitable for all students, you can't give one group a treatment that you don't give another group. So I, next thing you knew, I had to teach the select choir some jazz, and I had to teach the jazz choir some classical. And then that suddenly, when you actually do the testing... It, it kind of blurs. Right? Sure. But I still, to this day, believe there's something very much tied to this. Um, and and it, 
it was great to finish the doctorate. I learned an enormous amount about research. I learned a lot about music. I learned a lot about jazz. I learned about a lot about listening. Uh, I learned about how to create research studies and choose research questions and how to measure and evaluate. Uh, it did stretch me in a very big way. Uh, and the second I finished, when I came to school the next day after defending, the students had written up on the board, congratulations, DMAC. <laughs> and that nickname has stuck. And at that point, every, almost everyone knows me as DMAC, right? And, uh, and it, it's, it's fun to have the kids have named me, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and it, it does open up some doors, you know, it, it's, I love every moment, including this one, you know, you're asking me to come talk about music on a Sunday afternoon. Yep. I, I, that's pretty awesome and pretty special. And, um, and some of the accolades that have come over the last couple of years have been pretty special, no doubt. Uh, but it's not about the accolades because it's the students' work. Yeah. It's the students' work. No, you're in it for the right reasons, man. That's cool about you. Um, Thank you. A couple questions that I always ask all my, uh, all my guests. One, tell me, give me your top few musical moments ever in your life. Could be as a performer or an educator. Oh, um, not going to lie. Last year was a pretty big year. Last year was a pretty big year. Uh, the easy ones that I would go to. First, last year, conducting the Handel and Haydn Youth Courses on a subscription series concert at Symphony Hall, conducting the actual professional H&H Orchestra. Having the students perform on that stage in front of sold-out symphony halls and having an opportunity to work with those musicians that are in that orchestra... Uh, it was a feeling that I will never forget. Um, it was goosebumps from start to finish for me. Uh, and I, and I'm so grateful to that, having had that opportunity. Um, and the kids sang so, so well. Um, a second is both times the keynote singers from Wellesley performed Home Alone in concert with the Boston Pops. Uh, being in that, I, I mentioned that my dad, the name of our company, our family business was the McDonald's Christmas Shop. So an opportunity to be on the Holiday Pops circuit, right, with Symphony Hall decorated to the hilt uh, and, and, and having my kids sing with the Pops during that soundtrack. Uh, it was such a glorious sound. And, and that was fantastic because i'm sitting in the seats watching right and you're just watching your kids up there shine like you would not believe um very grateful to dennis alves and keith lockhart and the entire boston pops for opening up that opportunity number three beyond a shadow of a doubt it was one of the most amazing experiences i don't know if you went to this conference or not tom but the All Eastern Festival was held in 2017 in Atlantic City. No, I didn't get there. Well, tied to my dissertation, uh, you know, the group of choice for me is the New York Voices. Oh, yeah. I think they are... They're great. They are unbelievable. 
and and we had asked Lauren Kinnan to be a guest artist at our fall jazz concert that year in November. And we had already had Peter Eldridge uh, a couple years prior to that. And the Rice Street Singers at Wellesley High School were selected to do a concert hour at that All Eastern Festival. And they were helping me present a clinic all about the importance of American song. Uh, so my kids were going to be there and I'm there. And then I found out that the guest group for the festival was the New York voices. And I, I, I basically emailed Lauren Kinnan and I kind of said, Lauren, you're there. We're there. You know that we know some of your charts. Is there any way we might be able to sing a song with you? And I, I didn't know if, if, if Darman would go for it. I, I just, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, uh, and long story short, they said, okay. And, and, and we sang world keeps you waiting for the big gala concert in front of all of the students and all of the teachers from 13 States mm. in Atlantic city with the New York voices. And, that was such an incredible, incredible experience um, on so many levels. Uh, it, it, it was a it was a real highlight of my career uh, because the kids really got it. Like they they knew what that moment was, and they knew how special this was, and uh, and it has been an incredible legacy that they've left. So when New York Voices came and performed on our stage this past spring, that's that's right up there with with the Atlantic City one, because they're my idol group. Yeah, they're my idol group. So to have them sing with my kids, there's nothing better. There, you know, it's. I would say those are definitely three of the moments nice. that I would hang my hat on. Nice, that's great. Um, lastly, what are you listening to when you're? You have a short commute, but you. What are you listening to when you, uh, when you're in the car or just hanging out, listening to something? What are you listening to? So this is always a funny thing. Um, you know, my my extra listening takes place when I'm on the treadmill or when I'm on a run, and uh, and I'm a huge country music fan, mm. and and people don't normally expect that, uh, but really for me that's my, that's my that's my guilty pleasure uh sure. what i find you know i i went back and i listened to several of your podcasts in preparation of this um and and aaron and i really uh aaron bush and i had some great moments talking to each other last year through the whole grammy music educator process mm -hmm. and i and when he talks about listening to music of the uh, for his profession, he listens to band rap and jazz rap. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, spent a healthy amount of my life doing that, uh, nonstop. But what I find is country music allows me to not think. Sure, I it, it just it washes over me. Uh, I, I I enjoy it. I enjoy the sounds of it. I enjoy the fact that. I don't have to work hard to figure out what's happening anymore. 
and and I can run and I can walk and I can lift to country music because I'm not analyzing would this be great for my group or not and and it, so that's my guilty pleasure sure no that's good I mean I feel like you know it's funny like country music is, music is probably the only genre that I'm like nah, I just don't listen to it and honestly actually the funny thing is I had some dental work done the other day and they had a country music station on it was like okay I mean and, and actually the funny thing is is like at least they're playing their own instruments <laughs> you know like yeah. there's very little auto tune in it uh, you know I, I, I can get on board with that um, I will say it was really funny I think two out of every three songs the song lyrics definitely had people drinking whiskey that's like <laughs> so it's like always a thing they're always drinking whiskey that's like a, such a if you if you write a country song it's got to have the word whiskey in it but uh <laughs> well that's what i learned on tuesday anyway so uh but uh yeah no i feel like you know my wife has an english degree and sometimes you know when she's in, in the summer she's like oh, i got some beach reads you know like doesn't ha- and not everything yeah. y- if you're an english major not everything you read has to be of the highest quality or not everything we ha- we listen to you know i listen to i listen to 90s rock and it's like you know some of the guys can barely play the guitars but they wrote a killer tune man I, you know right. I, it, that's fine you know whatever <laughs> uh but hey man uh thanks so much for doing this i really appreciate it and uh it's so good to catch up with you and i hope to see you again i gotta make my way to Allstate again one of these days would love to see you love to see thank you, you. thanks for listening to the everything music ed podcast Be sure to check out future episodes as we talk to other educators from different teaching environments and cover areas of instruction such as concert band, jazz band, marching band, chorus, orchestra, general music, music tech, special needs, and much more. The theme music for the Everything Music Ed podcast is Jig, composed and arranged by Wally Minko. Jig is performed by Wayne Bergeron and can be found on his album, Full Circle. The Everything Music Ed podcast logo was created by Sarah Goulart.